Thanks, Bruce, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, speak here. I think it's in your program, but I, I do have some, dis some uh, disclosures here with related to a company that I've co-founded that uses some of the methods I'll be talking about today. Um, and I do some consulting in the, the field of the things I'm going to be uh, telling you about today. Um, so I'm going to talk, I'll, I'll, a, a feature of my talk, a really uh, focus of my talk is on what you might call precision medicine. And I'll define precision medicine since I'm the guy at the podium. And I'll call it basically using any uh, tumor-derived biomarker to drive, you know, tumor-specific therapy. You know, you're choosing the right drug for the right patient. And the way we've been doing this, so the, the, the sort of the very enchanting narrative we've had that's driven this for a long time, uh, at least for the last decade or so of my life in this field, has been the idea that uh, cancers bear somatic mutations, we'll identify these somatic mutations, choose drugs that target these somatic mutations, that's how we'll get rid of cancer, just like uh, the astounding success we had with imatinib. Okay, and this still drives all of our thinking, a huge amount of propaganda about what we call precision medicine. Precision medicine in cancer is universally, nearly universally equated with doing NGS type strategies, analyzing the cancer genome, okay? I think it's worth, if we're gonna devote our resources and our attention to this as the sole way that we do precision medicine, and of course I'm introducing this because I don't think this should be the sole way we do precision medicine, it's worth checking out how are we doing. All right, so I will put to you, and I'll show you a little data here, most patients derive absolutely no benefit from genetic analyses of their tumors. You can just, you can just look at the patients in your own clinic, or you can look at, um, you can look at you know, broader studies that people have, have, have done on this subject, but there are certainly people who've benefited, but as a population, most cancer patients derive no clinical benefit from these sorts of clinically, uh, these sorts of strategies. And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to hear. But I'll just show you, this is, this is some published data uh, that right here have graphically demonstrated the, the older published data. And there's been an update in the NCI MATCH trial. The NCI MATCH trial is uh, applying to advanced solid tumors these ideas of broad uh, genomic approaches. This is a sort of cancer gene panel that the NCI MATCH trial uses to then segregate patients who enroll in the trial to different arms. And it started at about 10 arms, and that's broadened out to about uh, 30 different arms. So how are we doing of those? So just in your mind, ask, so, so this is a feasibility study. They wanted to see if they could rapidly accrue, and by that measure, they were spectacularly successful. They very rapidly accrued 6,000 patients, okay? But we can also ask, although it wasn't a primary endpoint and it's an ongoing study, like, how much clinical benefit can we see from these approaches, right? It's like just to look beyond just the feasibility aspect of it. And does this mesh with the, the fairly... Uh, uh, grandiose claims that you see in popular literature as well as cancer cetera literature and so forth. So let's just see how we're doing so far. So there are a few of these arms that have been publicly revealed. For the most part, the response rates have no longer been publicly revealed because they're still accru accruing and so forth. And I'm going to show you just the ones that are publicly available. There's only, you know, a few of them. But how are we doing? Okay. Arm one, zero out of 65, first off, only 12% of patients even make it to a treatment arm, okay? That's 88 that don't make it to a treatment arm. Of the patients who make it to a treatment arm, treatment arm I, zero out of 65 objective responses, arm Q, three out of 37 objective responses, arm W, five out of 50 objective responses, so forth. So you can see there, of the patients who make it to an arm, there's about an 8% 
8.6% objective response rate. Now, that's not bad. I mean, these are, these are probably some patients with relapse refractory diseases. We know that advanced solid tumors are really tough. But I think it does force us for a second to just take a realistic evaluation of how much magic there is in this strategy. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it, but my only point in bringing this forward is saying that we also need to consider alternatives, which of course I'm gonna to try to provide you one of. And I think one of the problems is, is that to understand a, a, a sort of tumor-specific drug sensitivity is a pretty subtle cellular phenotype. And genetics is not made well to discriminate uh, subtle phenotypes, even pretty important phenotypes, and just look at your own body. Okay, if I were to, if you were kind enough to donate, say, your retina, a liver biopsy, and a blood sample, we could sequence your retina, your hepatocytes, and your neutrophils and ask, what does the genome tell us about how they differ? The genome tells you nothing. You would get the same genome from all those three phenotypically very distinct cells. And this should tell you the same thing is very likely going on for some very important phenotypes in cancer that regulate chemosensitivity. And hence, it might be just too much to ask from genomics to be the sole tool to drive our choices and therapies of patients moving forward. So the, I'm only saying this, I'm not trying to say that NGS is useless in cancer. It's not useless. There's plenty of charming anecdotes as well as larger uh, experiences of patients who derive benefit from NGS-based uh, therapies, EGFR inhibitors in lung cancer, BRAF inhibitors in, in BRAF mutant melanoma. Okay, but a lot of patients don't benefit. Most patients do not benefit. So can we just agree? And this is a hard enough thing, it's very hard to get patient, people, especially people who are very invested in this program, to just agree that this is not good enough and we need to try other things as well. All right. That's, that's my only point in presenting it this way. And you can read about this yourself. There's plenty of people who write critically about it. So what I suggest is one of the challenges of the omics type strategies, as well as a lot of strategies we use to match patients with drugs in, in cancer patients, is that we're using dead cells. We're, using, we're studying artifacts. We're studying uh, 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 the remainder of a dead cell. That we, The first thing we do when we get a, a tissue out of a patient is to kill it by freezing it or fixing it or something like that. And I think that there's a lot of data that we could be getting out of living cells. We just need to do the proper engineering to design the system so that we can perturb those cells, okay, do it really quickly, and then measure something really important that actually corresponds to the in vivo response that you want to see. So I'm going to be talking today about how we can make measurements in the apoptotic signaling of cancer cells and how we can use that to drive uh, individualized uh, cancer therapies. So first I'm gonna introduce the apoptotic pathway very briefly. I'm gonna talk about how this has been used in the case of BH3 mimetics, uh, specifically with the drug venetoclax, a BCL2 inhibitor. And then I'll move on to more general applications of drug choosing using strategies that rapidly measure drug-induced death signaling directly in living patient cancer cells. Okay, so this is a representation of the BCL2 family in, uh, uh, that regulates apoptosis. So the, the determining event in whether a cell is undergo apoptosis or not is permeabilization of the mitochondrial outer membrane. This is a stylized mitochondrion down here. And that, that mitochondrial outer member, membrane permeabilization event is followed by a large cascade of events that includes activation of proteases and nuclease that rapidly within minutes irreversibly commits that cell to death. And I'm, although those are important, I'm not going to 
look at that. I'm going to just consider the decision, the decision-making apparatus, and that's the BCL2 family. So without getting into all the circuitry that I've laid out here for you, that's been painstakingly constructed by many investigators over the last 25 years, um, there are pro-apoptotic proteins that facilitate this permeabilization and anti-apoptotic proteins that oppose it. And there is basically a battle in all the cells in your body between the pro and the anti-apoptotics. And when the pro-anti-apoptotics dominate, overbalance the anti, the cell is committed to apoptosis. This kind of battle between the pro and anti-apoptotics takes place via sequestering events by the anti-apoptotics. And they sequester pro-apoptotics by binding BH3 domains. These are, these are about 20 amino acid amphipathic alpha helices. Um, it binds the hydrophobic pocket of a pro-apoptotic protein, uh, is bound into the hydrophobic pocket of an anti-apoptotic protein. And this dimerization event is the key interaction by which the decisions are being made right there at the mitochondria. And, and it turns out that you can duplicate a lot of the pro-apoptotic effect of pro-apoptotic proteins simply with the BH3 peptides. That is, you can make synthetic 20 amino acid peptides that largely duplicate pro-apoptotic effects. And what we found out a long time ago when I was a postdoc in Stan Korsmeyer's lab is thus you can use these reagents on mitochondria to sort of tilt the balance the other way. That is, you can use these, add these to a mitochondrion and ask, how much of that do I need to add until it tilts so far the mitochondria permeabilizes? And thus was born something that we now call BH3 profiling. So I'm going to be talking a lot about this later on. It's a tool my lab uses all the time. And the idea is we take mitochondria, expose them to these synthetic peptides, and then measure mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization. And we have a lot of ways to measure this. One of the ways that I'm going to talk about mainly is egressive intermembrane space proteins. This, like cytochrome C is a great example of this. There's a lot of good antibodies against cytochrome C, so that's really our workhorse protein, but we could use other ones. So what we have done with BH3 profiling is just systematize something that we're familiar with from a biological point of view, because we have BH3 peptides as reagents that we can synthesize, we can order them, we, we know precisely what quantity we have so that we can systematically titrate these to mitochondria from one patient to another, to another, to another, so that we can compare patients in a very rigorous and systematized fashion. So the, uh, the way we perform BH3 profiling uh, differs depending on the circumstances, but I'll describe one that really drives a lot of what we do, this so-called fax assay. And in this, we take a single cell suspension now, these BH3 peptides don't get into cells readily at all, so we have to gently permeabilize the mitochondrial, sorry, the plasma membrane of the, of the cell. We use low concentrations of digitonin that leave the mitochondrial membranes unaffected, but permeabilize the plasma membrane because of differential cholesterol concentrations. Anyway, we uh, gently permeabilize the plasma membrane, let the BH3 peptides get into contact the mitochondria, and then measure mitochondrial permeabilization via loss of cytochrome C. So you can see here, these are cells that are exposed to no BH3 peptide. BIM is one of our BH3 peptides. And there's a pretty strong cytochrome C signal. And then in the presence of one of our, of a certain concentration of BH3 peptide, there's a one to two log shift in the signal of cytochrome C. So it's a very clear signal that we get. The reason why the cytochrome C signal is lost completely, because I'll remind you, when we permeabilize the mitochondria and the cytochrome C leaves the mitochondria, we're doing that in the context of a cell which itself is permeabilized. So the cytochrome C basically just keeps going and you get a cytochrome C negative cell that we can discriminate on facts. 
The nice thing about facts is we can, we can um, analyze pretty complicated patient samples that are pretty heterogeneous because we can incorporate cell surface markers with additional colors in addition to the basic color that we need for cytochrome C and therefore study just individual populations. Often we just want to study the myeloblast or the leukemia subpopulation and we can do that using additional markers. So the information you get out of this assay depends on the different peptides that you use. Uh, I've classified peptides here as promiscuous or selective based on their ability to interact with these anti-apoptotic proteins. These are five anti-apoptotic proteins of the BCL2 family, and these are some of our workhorse peptides. And I'll first talk about the selective ones. You could, this is a binding chart just a biochemical binding chart that, chart that was painstakingly constructed many years ago. And this HRK peptide, you can see, selectively interacts with BCLXL. And the Noxip peptide selectively interacts with MCL1. And that means you can use these as probes of uh, mitochondria that live in cells that are very, say, BCLXL dependent or very MCL1 dependent. Because if you have a mitochondria that's very sensitive to titrations of the HRK peptide, that's a mitochondria that's very dependent on BCLXL, one of the anti-apoptotic proteins for ongoing survival. You can extract similar information about BCL2, which is going to be important as I go on, by simply using this bad peptide that's sort of semi-selective and subtracting away the effects of the HRK peptide. So basically the bad peptide, uh, sensitivity of mitochondria to the bad peptide turns out to be an index for cellular BCL2 dependence. And so we thought to ourselves, wow, this might be a way to identify BCL2 dependent cells. And we really cared about this because we could see that BCL2 inhibitors were starting to appear in drug company pipelines, but it really wasn't clear how we were gonna use these drugs or if there was a therapeutic index to be expected at all in the first place. And this enabled us uh, to have a test where we could analyze tissue by tissue what was the BCL2 dependence of different cancers, different normal tissues, et cetera. So to see if this uh, concept held any water, we actually constructed a leukemia base that was BCL2 dependent and a very similar leukemia that was MCL1 dependent, MCL1 being an anti-apoptotic cousin of BCL2. And we asked, can we discriminate the dependence of these leukemias based on our mitochondrial peptide sensitivity. And indeed we could. You can see that the MCL1 dependent leukemia uh, has mitochondria that are very sensitive to the Noxa peptide, whereas the BCL2 dependent leukemia has mitochondria that are very resistant to the Noxa peptide. It doesn't care. It's not dependent on, B on MCL1, but it is dependent on BCL2, so it's sensitive to the bad peptide. And we since used this in a bunch of other model systems to show that we could reproducibly identify BCL2 dependent, MCL1 dependent, BCLXL dependent cells. So then we turned our attention to the clinic and we said, can we do this in clinical samples? We want to know which patients would benefit most from BCL2 inhibitors. This is work done over 10 years ago now. So one of the uh, most important early findings that Vicky uh, Delgaizo Moore made in my laboratory was that CLL that expresses BCL2, expresses BCLXL, expresses MCL1, but it's a BCL2 dependent disease. And you can see this in this, this primordial BH3 profile here where it is quite, the mitochondria from CLL cells are quite sensitive to the bad peptide, but relatively resistant to the Noxip peptide and the HRK peptide, giving us a signature for BCL2 dependence. Moreover, 
This was a very homogeneous finding. She found it in CLL patient after patient after patient after patient. Essentially, every CLL patient she studied, and she studied dozens, bore this signature of BCL2 dependence, suggesting that CLL would be a disease where BCL2 inhibitors would work and would work quite homogeneously. So, fast, so this is the mechanism by which a BTH3 mimetic or a BCL2 inhibitor works. And this is in the CLL context. And I'm not going to go into a lot of molecular mechanism today, but I'll show this. And, and I'm not really showing here all the data that went into this, including protein levels, immunoprecipitation assays, and so forth. But the reason why a cell, in a molecular terms, is dependent on BCL2 to begin with is because um, it has BCL2, of course, at its mitochondria, but that BCL2 is not empty. Rather, it is jammed full of, of pro-apoptotic proteins that the BCL2 is busy defending against in a tonic way. So if you lose BCL2 function, those are freed, and they're able to kill the cell very rapidly. What the BCL2 inhibitor does, this is one of the early tool compounds, is it competes for this binding site, displacing the pro-apoptotic molecule and allowing the oligomerization events of the pro-apoptotic proteins that is what permeabilizes the mitochondria and commits the cell to death. So basically, mitochondrial priming is what we call it when an anti-apoptotic protein is really loaded with a pro-apoptotic protein so that inhibition of that anti-apoptotic protein rapidly causes cell death. Fast forward to just a couple years ago, and now the FDA has actually granted approval in CLL for the use of venetoclax, a selective BH3 mimetic small molecule. I'm not going to walk you through these clinical results. There's some great clinical work done by Andrew Roberts and Stefan Stilgenbauer and many and Matt Davids here at uh, Dana-Farber to show that CLL, just as predicted by Vicky over 10 years ago, is a very homogeneously BCL2-dependent disease that's very sensitive to venetoclax inhibition. It was originally approved in 17p-deleted CLL because that's where the need was greatest, but it's sub subsequently been additional approval so that it has a broadened label to be applicable to all of CLL. And I think you will continue to see over time a broadening and a broadening of venetoclax. And it's so active, it may eventually move up front in combination with other therapies. Uh, so it, this is sort of a very exciting validation of, uh, of, our, of our early suppositions about CLL, but also I think a very exciting avenue for CLL patients. We also look into AML. For reasons that have nothing to do with science, there was a lot of resistance to treating AML patients or to, to studying BCL2 dependence in AML, and it was simply amazing at early, early trying to get grants and publications through on this, how often we would run into a reviewer, perhaps the same reviewer every time, who would just categorically state AML is not a BCL2-dependent disease, it is instead an MCL1-dependent disease, without any citation, nor could there be a citation, because there was no data to support that contention one way or the other, and I think it was largely based on the fact that the M in uh, AML, myeloid, is the same as the M in MCL1, myeloid, because it was originally identified in a myeloid cell leukemia. But, but it's, it, it was just so funny how a historical artifact like that would suddenly govern the view of uh, many people in, in a field of AML. But Trangvo in my lab didn't just leave it at that. She actually did the test. So she took a whole lot of AML samples and asked the question, are they BCL2 dependent? And it turned out AML is a more heterogeneous disease than CLL. So you could see there's quite a spread in the sensitivity to the 
to the bad peptide. And the red and the blue just happen to be some patients that were sensitive to chemotherapy and patients who were resistant to chemotherapy. But in both sets of patients, you can see there's a distinct signal of sensitivity to the bad peptide that exceeds that in normal hematopoietic stem cells, HSCs. So it seems there is a built-in therapeutic index for BCL2 dependence in at least a lot of people with, with AML. And this was enough for me and uh, Marina Konopleva to bring to AbbVie this data. She had, she had uh, uh, data that she generated use, using different strategies to show that AML was sensitive to BCL2 inhibition. And we got AbbVie to start a clinical program in AML therapy with uh, venetoclax. So these are, this is a summary of the results in the monotherapy, the first one. These are in re relapsed refractory patients. And, uh, and we were not curing people in this single agent, in, in the single agent trial, but it's remarkable the amount of biological activity you can see in this waterfall plot. So anything below the line are patients who had some reduction in their leukemia burden caused by the uh, drug. And where they're green, they actually had a complete remission. These complete remissions were not durable, yet it told us that there was certainly some BCL2 dependence as we would have predicted in AML and that it was worthy of further study. So the fairly simple and I think smart step that Avi took next was to combine this with some therapies that already worked in AML, like hypomethylating agents. And these are the results, really startling results, I thought. Uh, with the er, er, early data on the um, combination of venetoclax with uh, videza or decitabine. And in this case, we got something more like a 75% complete remission slash CRI rate in previously untreated elderly patients who were treated by this regimen. So this is essentially uh, uh, complete remission rates that are comparable to those that you would enjoy from highly toxic induction regimens that require uh, uh, inpatient uh, stays of a month or more. And this is essentially an outpatient regimen, just taking for the venetoclax is just taking a pill a day and the decide to be in a videza administration is just clinically standard. So this suggested that there indeed there was a room for BCL2 inhibition in AML, and this has been pro progressing in the standard way through clinical trials. Now in phase three, the phase two data is uh, recently, just last week, uh, an update was published in, uh, in blood and uh, online, no long, not yet in the journal. And you can see that these results have held up over an increasing uh, number of patients so that it, it does seem clear that there's going to be a role for venetoclax, at least in the previously untreated patients in, in AML. Also a very rare disease, we performed very similar analysis, blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm. We did this with Andy Lane, a collaborator down the hall. This very rare disease that I have never seen a patient with, but it's something that Andy was somewhat interested in. These patients essentially have a disease, a cancer of dendritic cells. And they tend to have a lot of skin disease like we see here. And he said, wow, this expresses a lot of BCL2. Let's see if it's actually BCL2 dependent. So we did those studies, and then it showed that it was actually very BCL2 dependent. And he went back and treated these patients who have very poor uh, alternatives, and very nice responses were obtained, uh, uh, pretty near total resolution of the skin disease in two different patients treated with uh, uh, venetoclax uh, for the BPDCN. So this is just to show that these functional uh, ex vivo biomarkers, uh, uh, BH3 profile, were able to accurately assign therapy across several very different diseases in the blood cancers. And we've done this across a lot of different blood cancers now, and the appropriate clinical trials are underway. But I'll just make the point before we leave this, if we were still waiting for genomics to assign these therapies, none of these patients would have been treated because none of these diseases I'm talking about have any relevant mutations or genomic abnormalities in any proteins having to do with BCL2. 
So there's also these peptides, the ones we call promiscuous peptides, that interact with essentially all of the anti-apoptotic proteins. And what this suggests to us is sensitivity to one of these promiscuous peptides doesn't tell you about individual anti-apoptotic dependence. Rather, it tells you about overall uh, 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 sensitivity to apoptotic signaling, what we call primedness, how close a cell is to the threshold of apoptosis, so that a cell or a mitochondrion that's very sensitive to one of these promiscuous peptides is, we envision that as being perched on the threshold, perched on the edge of a cliff, just about to go over the edge to uh, apoptosis. Whereas a mitochondrion that's very resistant, that requires a large number of these peptides to permeabilize, is something that's very far from the edge of the cliff, very hard to undergo apoptosis. So I'm going to circle back to this in a second, but first I'll get you to a question that has really baffled me for a long, long time. And that is, why does chemotherapy ever work? It is just a terrible, terrible idea. So most of the chemotherapy that we use targets DNA and microtubules in very general terms, okay? And we're familiar with the idea that we want cancer-specific targets, you know, like a mutant EGFR, a mutant BRAF, or something like that. This is a terrible idea. Every cell in your body has DNA and microtubules in it. Why should this ever work? Moreover, why should it have such a fantastic therapeutic index? I'll just remind you, like, Conventional chemotherapy uh, gets a bad rap, probably not by Bruce, but by a lot of people in the field, okay? They, they, it gets derided, but let's remember, it is our curative therapy, right? We use it to cure people. Millions of people have been cured of cancer using these DNA damaging agents that make your hair fall out, make you throw up and so forth, but it cures people like nobody's business. That means you present to your doctor with 10 to the 13th cells, malignant cells, and we get rid of all of them without causing even a one log kill in one of your uh, 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 vital organs. That's a pretty amazing therapeutic index. So what is causing this therapeutic index? So early ideas sort of centered around the idea that, well, there's super rapid proliferation of cancer cells, and that's why we get this. But those are really not borne out by any data. It's amazing how we hang so much. Our understanding of our only, uh, only curative therapy, we're hanging on this idea of like replication, and it really isn't borne out by much clinical data at all. And in fact, there's some very slow-growing tumors, like indolent lymphomas, that are quite sensitive to chemotherapy. So there has to be something more. So we thought, maybe this is what's happening. Maybe all cells endure stress from, from these types of therapies, okay? They endure stress that's converted to pro-apoptotic signaling. But there's some cells that are perched on the edge, and those cells commit to cell death. They're forced to this binary commitment, this switch-like commitment to cell death. But there's other cells, like, say, normal cells or chemo-resistant cancer cells that are further from the edge, and they endure death signaling, and they move towards the towards this sort of cliff edge, but they don't commit to cell death, okay? They live to fight another day because they're so far from the edge. And it occurred to us, we now have a tool to test this hypothesis. We can simply, we have, a we have a measure with our promiscuous peptides. We can just measure our cells that we measure as being closer to this cliff edge, more sensitive to chemotherapy. So this was work that was pioneered by Triani Keneally in my lab, who's now, uh, has her own lab in Dublin. And I am convinced this is the main reason why chemotherapy ever works. This is why lymphoid tumors are universally sensitive to chemotherapy, has nothing to do with the specific mutations they bear. Of course, different mutations can bear prognostic significance, but the main reason why all blood cancers are chemosensitive in general and all pancreatic cancers are not isn't because of specific mutations. It's because of how prime they are. 
So this is the first result we really had. This happened to be uh, in myeloma, and Trina studied a set of myeloma patients prior to their therapy and measured how prime they were, and then stuck around and saw how much is the M protein, sort of a marker of, of response, how much does that monoclonal protein go down with standard therapy? And there was a pretty good correlation, and that led her to do more work across a couple different types of tumor, multiple myeloma, adult ALL, and ovarian cancer, very different diseases, all with their own types of treatment. And she found that she could discriminate chemosensitive and chemoresistant patients based on the sensitivity of their mitochondria to our peptides. Basically, pretreatment mitochondrial priming was a great predictor of who's going to have a good clinical response to therapy. I'll just point out, childhood ALL, one of the most chemosensitive diseases we know, was one of the most highly primed uh, cancers we ever had the privilege to study. And these relatively rare, but also uh, very chemo-resistant diseases were very unprimed. In fact, they're so unprimed for apoptosis, they were no more primed than most of our normal tissues. We've subsequently engaged in a lot of studies of normal tissues. Chris Sorosic has really piloted those, both in humans and in mice. And it turns out that most of our somatic tissues are very, very unprimed for apoptosis with one exception, our blood and bone marrow-derived cells. And I don't think it's any coincidence that uniformly, a very common dose-limiting toxicity for the conventional chemotherapy agents we give is bone marrow toxicity or leukocytopenia. Uh, and I think this is simply because our, that's showing us that our normal cells that are very highly primed are also the most chemosensitive. So the main lessons from this baseline BH3 profiling, this is BH3 profiling just done at the time of presentation of the tissue without any additional perturbation. I think we can use this information to put BH3 mimetics like venetoclax, a BCL2 inhibitor, and now it's a member of a growing field of BCL2, BCLXL, and MCL1 inhibitors. I think we can put these where they're needed most in the clinic. I think we can also explain the bulk, not absolutely every detail, but the bulk of what's been observed for many years about chemosensitivity, I think is largely due to differences in apoptotic priming. Normal cells are unprimed, and this, I think, gives us a lot of hope for our ability to actually combine BH3 mimetics in the future, but I won't be able to talk about that today. So in the final part of my talk, I'm going to really just talk about this hypothesis, and that is that drugs that initiate apoptotic signaling in patient cancer cells, these are probably good drugs to use on those patients. So we spent a lot of effort over the last five years or so just to develop efficient systems of rapidly measuring the induction of apoptotic signaling in patient cancer cells by drugs. Some of you in this room appear old enough to, have, to remember that there was a time where ex vivo chemosensitivity testing was kind of a hot topic, and it petered out. Why did it peter out? It petered out, I think, well, the results weren't good enough. That's one major, major reason it petered out. But if you look at them, they weren't nothing either. If there were some correlations between ex vivo sensitivity and response in the clinic, they just weren't good enough and there weren't enough drugs around and the cell culture conditions were bad and no one ever did the necessary trials to show these things could be useful as a clinical predictive biomarker and it just went away. Genomics came around and everyone sort of followed the, that uh, new and exciting paradigm. But I think there's a lot of information that we can get 
for actually taking the drugs we're interested in and putting them on the living cells that we're interested in, but we have to focus uh, on the specific conditions and on developing a strategy where we can do it really fast. One of the major problems with old strategies, it was the requirement for long-term ex vivo culture of cancer cells, and that is not generally possible. So we wanted to do this in a way where we could measure just the, be the beginning, just the initiation of death signaling, not the completion that can take many, many days sometimes, but just the initiation of death signaling. So in our parlance, what we wanted to do was look at the change in priming induced by cancer cell, induced in cancer cells by different drugs. And this is something that we call dynamic BH3 profiling, pioneered by Juan Montero in my lab, now leading a lab in Barcelona. And the idea is we would take a single cell suspension of whatever tumor we're interested in, plate it in a 384 well plate, and then expose it to whatever drugs we're interested in. And these exposures are only six to 24 hours. We don't want propagation, expansion, or long-term survival of our disease in the, in, in the ex vivo setting. We want to get it straight from the patient, straight to study as fast as possible so there's no selection and as little adaptation as possible. Then we just measure, compared to a drug untreated well, are there any drug-treated wells where there is an enhanced sensitivity to BH3 peptides at the mitochondrial level, what we call a delta priming? And that's a very easy piece of information to read out now. Each well can be assigned a delta priming value. And where there's a good positive delta priming value, we predict that's a good drug. And where it's missing, we would overlook that drug and deprioritize it. And we wanted to see how can we can we use this in some clinical decision making or at least ex vivo uh, or preclinical decision making for our drugs? So, Juan, I don't have time to show you. Juan initially tested this in well over 100 cell line experiments with a wide variety of drugs and a wide variety of, of different solid and liquid tumor cell lines and found that he was reliably able to predict response to agents days before they died using this strategy. Shruti Bhatt, a very talented postdoc in my lab, has more least recently been doing these tests in the setting of AML PDX models, acute myelogenous leukemia models. Dave Weinstock at Dana-Farber has very generously created this proxy data sort of a repository of a bunch of different uh, uh, PDX models, and he's very kindly shared with them. And PDX models are convened for this sort of biomarker evaluation because you can treat many, uh, you can treat the same tumor many different ways, so in a way that you can never do with a single human being. So Shruti's strategy for dynamic BHC profiling was this. She would take the myeloblasts and expose them to some drug treatment ex vivo, usually using a 384 wells uh, um, format. And then she would do cell surface staining and discriminate the blasts in our bone marrow, patient bone marrow samples and so forth, and discriminate using CD, uh, CD45 and side scatter. And then she would do the BH3 profiling where we permeabilize the cells, expose the BH3 peptides, and measure right cytochrome C, measure out cytochrome C as she showed here, so we could see where are there drugs that enhance the BH3 peptide-induced cytochrome C release. And that's what she measured out as delta priming. So one, so she's done this now in a large, fairly significant series of AML um, uh, samples, and everything I, from here on in is unpublished data. Um, so across these 16 or so uh, samples, 
One question is, is she really finding anything of biological relevance? And I think one indication that she is is simply the fact that she's able to, in a very unbiased clustering method, discriminate treatment naive from previously treated AML samples. So the yellow are all patients who've been treated with chemotherapy before, and as any clinician knows, people who get uh, chemotherapy and then relapse from it tend to be resistant to drugs, and patients who uh, are, are treatment naive tend to be more sensitive. In any case, they have very distinct chemosensitivity patterns. And what you can see here, these are the patient samples, and these are all of the drugs, and an unbiased clustering algorithm puts all the untreated patients together and all the previously treated patients together with one, uh, exam one uh, exception, of course. Suggesting, this suggests to me, okay, she's really measuring something of biological relevance. But let's look at this with a little more specificity. So what she did is some of the individual drugs that you saw there, she subjected the actual PDX models to in vivo testing with those exact drugs and asked the question, how well do her ex vivo dynamic BH3 profiling predictions, how well do they bear out in the in vivo setting in the actual mice? And so this way what she did is she injected the mice, uh, these are uh, 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 NSG mice, these are injected with the uh, human uh, myeloblasts, and once the circulating blast count gets to five to 10%, she begins the therapy. So these are actual therapeutic, not uh, prevention experiments. And then measures at two weeks, after two weeks of therapy, measures the myeloblast reduction that has been observed. So these are the results summarized here. On the x-axis is the signal from our assay, and on the y-axis is the blast reduction. So you would expect to see a positive correlation if our uh, predictor is actually working. And you could see there's actually a very good correlation across all the different agents that we use. And they're very diverse agents that she tests. So this one is a SMAC mimetic. This is a kinase, a FLT3 inhibitor. This is a bromodomain inhibitor, JQ1. This is venetoclax, good old venetoclax. And you can see across the board, we're able to predict response just by this simple one-day assay that we're doing on living cells. One thing I think is of particular interest and satisfying to me is some of you may be aware that in the clinic, um, uh, whereas quizartinib and other FLT3 inhibitors are directed usually at patients who bear FLT3 mutations or FLT3 internal tandem duplications, it's also known from early clinical studies that there's a lot of wild-type patients who also respond to FLT3 inhibitors, even though the FLT3 does not bear any of these mutations. So what's very nice about Shruti's work is you can see the ones that are blue are wild-type, and she was able to identify wild-type responders as well as ones that, as well as uh, the uh, FLT3 uh, mutant responders suggesting that this could be a very broad way to uh, identify who would benefit from FLT3 inhibitors in the clinic. Does this bear out in actually human clinical trials? This is a clinical trial run by Jacqueline Garcia back when she was at Stanford, and this is a clinical trial of lenalidomide combined with MEK, mitoxantrone, etoposide, and cytarabine. And the question was, can we discriminate responders and non-responders? This is completely retrospective data from stored, viably stored samples. And in a blinded fashion, uh, Shruti performed dynamic BH3 profile on this set of patients. And Jackie cl uh, clustered them into, e into either the responders and the non-responders. And you could see that Shruti was able to, with uh, a high degree of accuracy, discriminate the complete responders from the non-responders based simply on this dynamic BH3 profiling assay. 
A question I often get is, does this only work in liquid tumors? Because I got my start in blood tumors and so forth. And is this also true in solid tumors? And there's nothing in the biology I've told you that should restrict it just to blood cancers. And here's an example uh, uh, I'll show you. Um, this takes advantage of what we call high-throughput dynamic BH3 profiling. It's a microscope based assay based on automated imaging and automated imaging analysis that Patrick Bola pioneered in my laboratory. And the idea is very similar. You distribute wells to a 384 well plate, you treat with drugs, but then at the end of the incubation, you per perform the BH3 profiling right in the wells on the adherent cells and then fix them in situ and image for cytochrome C release and let the computer tell you which cells have released cytochrome C and which haven't and then look for the difference in cytochrome C release in the cells that um, got a drug versus the ones that didn't. So we're still, the same principle, we're looking at drug-induced enhancement of peptide-induced cytochrome C release from mitochondria as our signal here. And the higher the signal of delta priming, the better the drug should be. So Patrick, as well as Amon and Emily shown here, said, well, let's take a test system. Let's take a, uh, a, a, a mouse tumor. This is the PYMT, MMTV breast tumor. And let's just subject this to us. We should be able to identify active drugs. And this is totally mechanism agnostic. We should just be able to pick drugs out of library, treat the tumor, and make it go away if we're right. And so they took a 1,600-member bioactive library and tested it. And this is what the data looks like. This is what the drug untreated wells look like. There's no delta priming. And in the 1,600 drugs, drug-treated wells, you can see there are some where there is a delta priming, where there is some death signaling induced. And it's from this subset that we'll draw our candidates. To prioritize a little bit better, we counter-screened against some normal tissues with the idea that if there's some of these drugs that are just more generally toxic, we'll deprioritize these. So we prioritize the ones that didn't induce death signaling in normal cell equivalents and the ones in the, in the gray box got prioritized, and then we further prioritized just by cheapness and ease of administration. And when we did this, these are the this is one, one demonstration of the results that we got here. This is a vehicle-treated animal, pretty rapid growth. This is an animal treated with one of the drugs we identified, happens to be an HSP90 inhibitor, uh, but in a way, who cares? And also desatinib, a bcr able kinase inhibitor used in CML, and we used that. That also responded, and you can see the combination, we only treated for 14 days, but the combination essentially induced a complete remission in the solid tumor after two weeks. Um, we uh, did this on a few more to include some both, uh, uh, one more positive as well as some negative controls. And again, you can see there's a very good correlation between the delta priming we see on this axis, axis and the fold change in tumor that we see on this axis. And so we feel pretty good about our ability from blind non-mechanism-based uh, 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 screening to identify in an individual's tumor the drugs that will uh, best uh, benefit that individual. Here's an example of a breast PDX model from a patient with uh, triple negative breast cancer. Uh, Jean Zhao had this data, which is the response data um, to these drugs that you see listed here. So Patrick just performed dynamic BH3 profiling using the same drugs that you see here. And once again, you see a good correlation. And certainly we'll be able to identify the most active combination that Gene identified. Uh, but you see there's a good correlation between what we saw in terms of delta priming and the actual clinical response in, in, in uh, uh, Gene's uh, mouse PDX model. So in addition to choosing uh, therapies for injurable patients, we can apply this, and I, this is all I'm going to show you about this. I think it's time that we develop pharmacotypes for tumors. I think that we've had 
a decade of genotypes of tumors that have been of varying utility. Certainly there have been some very successful identification of therapies, but I think there's probably uh, active drugs that we've left on the table that we just have no idea because we don't have the tools to identify. Just using these simple brute empiric methods, I think we can identify now directly on patient primary tumors, not on any kind of a model, not on any kind of a, a mouse, not on any cell line, directly on patient tumors, identify the drugs that work. And this is just an example of some, uh, uh, some data we're generating in, in colon cancer. But I think we're going to discover some histology-wide vulnerabilities we can take advantage of. But I think we'll also identify some more private vulnerabilities that we can only take advantage of in a patient-by-patient -patient fashion. I think ultimately if we're going to make a dent in the treatment of solid tumors, the kind of dent that we'd start to be satisf satisfied with, it's going to need the assembly of combination regimens. I think we know that from any curative therapies that we see in oncology essential, essentially is we start with one active therapy and combine it with another and another and another, and you've got to get that number up to three or four. Now, you might not give all three or four at once. You may have to be a little more imaginative about how you administer these things, but it's going to take a number of active therapies in order to get anywhere near uh, long-term disease for your survival in patients with advanced solid tumors. How do we choose these therapies? Well, I don't think we should throw out, I was sort of you know, critical of the approach of omics technologies, but they do provide useful information sometimes, and where they do, we should use that information. Let's choose drugs who, that, that are correctly identified by omics technologies. Let's also use the information that we've acquired over the last 40, 50 years of, of clinical therapy. There are some drugs that we know work really well in, in, in certain settings, so we should continue to use those. Even if they are cytotoxic chemotherapy, why not? It's something that works very well sometimes. But I also think an increasingly large role is going to be played by these sorts of functional assays. I've only presented my own lab's work, but you should know that there's a lot, there's different pods around the world uh, of, of sort of survivors of the last 10 years who have been diligently applying cell biology techniques to trying to directly identify patient cancer cell chemical vulnerabilities. And in fact, having identified this, I recently founded a society that you see right here to just really try to unite these people. And, and literally from around the world, we just recently founded this, just it's less than a year old. We're going to have our first annual meeting March 30th right at ACR. Please come and join us if you're interested or visit our website and think about joining the society if you're interested in this type of thing because I think, I, I don't see any way around it. I think this is going to be so powerful and the results I've seen from other people are so useful. I think that this is going to be largely how we choose therapies over the next five to ten years. I've tried to mention people as I went along who did this work. I probably didn't sufficiently mention Jeremy Ryan, who was an innovator in pretty much all of the technology that I presented to you. But uh, I, uh, with that, I think I will stop now, and I'd be happy to take any questions. Thanks. I don't have any direct evidence, but I think that's extremely likely. How do you design a clinical trial with a control group, or if you use this mechanism, you see a 75% response rate. How do you know that that's meaningful? Yeah, so that's a great question, Phil. So 
we have to rethink to, to, so Phil is talking about how do you construct a clinical trial not to test a therapeutic, but rather to, to, to test a diagnostic strategy. If, if, and I think we have to rethink how we do clinical trials in order to do this. So in fact, Jacqueline Garcia recently, I think, presented a, uh, uh, one, one such strategy where you allocate patients to sort of functionally derived therapy, and then you compare them to some sort of a standard. Now, either a standard therapy that's already being used, that's what she's suggested. So in her case, it was an AML trial where patients were assigned to kinase inhibitors based on, uh, based on um, uh, this functional uh, uh, predictive biomarker, or alternatively, if they didn't have a vulnerability identified by that method, to a standard therapy like Videsa and just see who does better. That's one way to do it. The other is, for better or for worse, um, people uh, often consider, uh, you know, these NGS methods as a standard of care for identifying therapy. So I think another way you can do it is compare sort of like we do with therapeutics, do dynamic, dynamic BHV profiling plus NGS versus NGS alone and have two different arms and, and, and basically see which patients do better. But here you're comparing patients who are treated with a lot of different drugs here and a lot of different drugs in, in the two different arms. So you're not testing the drugs, you're testing instead the uh, actual diagnostic strategies. Thanks.